Good morning, Impact Church. It's so good to be here. Mary and I have been on the road a pretty good bit, and so when we come in here on a Sunday morning, it's like we breathe a sigh of relief as soon as we come through those doors because it's like we're with family. And so thank you for being here this morning. We got a lot of ground to cover this morning, so I'm going to go ahead and get started. Um, this morning in our time together, I want to start with a question. Actually, I'm going to start with an observation, then a question. And the question that I start with is something I would like you for, to at least consider for the next 30 minutes while I'm speaking on this subject. Hopefully you'll consider it longer than that, for, but for at least the next 30 minutes. But before I ask that, I would say this. I believe because you are here this morning in this church building, you would identify as or consider yourself a Christian just because you're here this morning. And I would also say that since you show up week after week, and that's a good thing, by the way, and you get to sit in these fine red cushiony seats at Impact Church every week, I would think that the people around you would consider that you were a Christian as well. So what I want to ask you this morning is this. When you walk out those doors after you leave here this morning, would anybody in our community consider you to be a Christian? That's the question I want you to consider for the next 30 minutes or so, at least. So who are you going to tell? Breaking your anonymity is what we're going to talk about this morning. You know, sometimes I believe we take our anonymity so seriously that we can miss out on the commission that was given to each one of us as believers. And it's a commission that was given to people who had made poor choices in their life, people who had been rebellious, people who were lost and couldn't find their way, but then they gave their lives to Jesus, and he gave them this commission to be his ambassador, a spokesman. And we know what a spokesman is, right? It's someone who speaks on behalf of whoever sent them. So God calls each one of us, because we're Christians, his ambassadors. 2 Corinthians 5.20 tells us this. We're therefore Jesus Christ ambassadors as though God, the Father, the creator of the cosmos, the one who spoke everything into existence, as though God was making his appeal, his appeal to who? To those who are still outside those doors. He was making his appeal through us. You know, I simply cannot keep quiet about what God has done in my life. I choose, and it is a choice, I choose to break my anonymity every day. I want people to know who rescued me. And like you, because I believe this about you because you're here, I believe you want to become more like Jesus every day. I do too. You know, and, and Peter and Jesus... We're in this pretty unique club. So I've been working on some things about how I could become more like Jesus. I got a slide, I think, of it up here. Yeah. <laughs> now, you might be thinking, hold on there. You Photoshopped that. I can promise you there's no Photoshop there. There's an actual picture. That's in Louisiana, our home in Louisiana. The water's a little thicker down there, so it's easier. <laughs> Seriously, though, the next slide, we're never more like Jesus than when we're helping someone else out of the mess that trapped us before we got to him. 
Now, since Peter was the one who walked on water, I thought it would be good to see what Peter had to say about being an ambassador of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 3.15 says this, But in your hearts set apart Christ, Jesus Christ, as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. In the Message Bible, I thought I'd just read it this morning because it says it a little differently. Listen to this. Through thick and thin, keep your hearts at attention in adoration before Jesus Christ, your Master. Be ready to speak up and tell anyone who asks why you're living the way you're living. And always do this with the utmost courtesy. You know, when I'm looking at this verse, there's a couple things that stick out to me. Actually, there's four words that really stand out. And these four words stand out to me because at this point in our lives, we have set apart Jesus as being the Lord of our lives. The first word is this, always. God says there should never be a time that we're not ready, willing, and able to share with everybody what he's done for us in our lives. So that word always leaves out when. It leaves out no time, right? We always ought to be prepared. The second word is everyone. God said I should live my life in such a way that anyone I come in contact with needs to see something in me that begs the question, what is it about you? And then finally, the third and fourth word, gentleness and respect. God says I should treat everyone with gentleness and respect. That's a, a little hard for me sometimes because I was not raised to be a gentle man. I was raised in my family, you know, who's a man? You know, you show you're a man. But God says I want you to be a gentle man and treat everybody you come in contact with gentleness and respect. That means when you find yourself in a situation where you are diametrically opposed to some individual, someone who is living a sinful lifestyle, and because the Scripture says it's a sinful lifestyle, you object to it, rightfully so, you still are not to beat them up with the truth. You're still expected to treat them with gentleness and a respect as you look for an opportunity to share with them what Jesus has done for you. I want to take the next few minutes and look at three of God's ambassadors and how they dealt with their anonymity. The first one we'll look at is Nicodemus. Nicodemus wanted to give up his anonymity, but he was scared. He was scared to do it. And most of us know the story of Nicodemus. Scott talked about it a couple months ago. But if you don't know it, I'm going to give you a quick recap. Nicodemus came to Jesus in the middle of the night. Now, it's interesting that he came to Jesus because Nicodemus is a Pharisee. And most of us in, in, in the Bible world, anyway, in church world, we think, ooh, Pharisees, bad people. We don't like them because they always had a bunch of rules that nobody could live up to, including themselves, right? Well, Nicodemus was a Pharisee. Not only was he a Pharisee, but he was on the ruling council of Pharisees. So he knew all the law. He knew how to keep it. As a matter of fact, he could have quoted the first five books of the Old Testament from memory. Nicodemus knows it. And he comes to Jesus in the middle of the night, and it's interesting 
that he shows up in the middle of the night, probably because he didn't want his brother Pharisees to think less of him, but he calls Jesus rabbi. Now here's this young upstart preacher who's changing the world. I mean, people are just generally changing around him, and this older man who had been in the faith for years, who was a leader in the church, comes to Jesus and says, teacher. I find that pretty interesting. And he says, how do I get to know God on a deeper level? Because it seems like you have a pretty good connection with him. And Jesus, quite frankly, just says, well, you have to be born again. And Nicodemus is like, woohoo, cuckoo cocoa puffs, right? <laughs> he said, that's crazy talk. You cannot be born again. And Jesus says, that's what you have to do. And we sort of think of Nicodemus as that person that just doesn't quite get it. You know, I mean, come on. I mean, you're talking to Jesus. Whatever he says, you say yes. And Nicodemus is like, no, I, I, I don't get that. But I really don't want to focus on that. What I want to focus on is this. Not that Nicodemus at this point didn't get it. Nicodemus showed up. That was vital for his eternal life. You know, he didn't have to take the risk that he took. Sure, he came after dark, but at least he came. I know the first meetings that I ever went to were in the dark because I didn't want anybody, especially my old friends, to know what I was up to, right? Changing my life. Nicodemus then became a good example for each one of us because he was asking questions. He's a good example for us to ask questions even when and especially when you don't know the answer, when you don't have it all figured out. You know, answers don't come to those who act like or think like they know everything, right? They just don't come because you'll never ask the question. The quest for an answer begins with a little uncertainty. I'm not sure about this. And maybe even a little fear. What will they think about me if I ask this questions, but looking for answers can take you in places you never imagined you could go to. So asking questions is important. It's vital to our eternal life. I know I had questions when I first came to church, didn't you? Some of you, I'm sure did. Some of my questions were like, will the roof fall down if I walk in those doors? Will people actually accept me for who I am if I walk in those doors? Is there really any hope for me? Jesus will forgive how many sins? All of my sins? Those are the kind of questions that I had when I walked in those doors. So Nicodemus in chapter 3 shows up. He asks questions and leaves confused. How many of you left confused the first time you walked into one of these? I left confused. I'm like, that, they are really talking crazy. They said I could be forgiven of everything. They don't know me. Come to find out, they actually did. And they were right. I could and I was forgiven of everything. Before we see Nicodemus the next time, we'll see that he had some time to think over what Jesus had to say. And instead of giving up because he couldn't quite figure it out, he thought about what Jesus said, and thinking about it changed the way he thought. Now, we're getting back into chapter 7 now, and by this time... Nicodemus has decided that keeping his anonymity wasn't something that he necessarily had to do. Matter of fact, it might be better if he didn't keep his anonymity. So in chapter 7, the, the Pharisees send the temple police out. That's right, back then they had church police. Wow, that's pretty cool, right? I don't think we have any here. There's probably plenty of people packing in here, but nobody's got, there's no police. But anyway, um, 
that was off notes there. Mary's going to say later, why don't you stick to your notes? I'm trying, Mary. I'm trying, Mary. Um, Anyway, so they send the temple police out to go and arrest Jesus. Well, guess what? The temple police get there. They listen to Jesus, and then they come back without Jesus. And the Pharisees are like, why did you not bring Jesus back with you? And the police are like, we've never heard anybody speak like he speaks. And the Pharisees are like mad now. They start to berate the police. You mean you've been taken in by the Jesus just like the common people have? And they get very angry. But there's one Pharisee who now finds his anonymity not something he's so ready to hold on to. And he speaks up before the whole crowd. And you know who it is, right? And you know, when you've got a different opinion than everybody else, how hard is it to speak up? Well, Nicodemus is the only one going to stand up for Jesus now. Everybody else is against Jesus except maybe the police. All right. So Nicodemus stands up and he says this to the rest of the Pharisees. Our law does not judge people without first giving them a hearing to find out what they're doing, does it? You know why I love that? Because who else asks questions? Jesus. He always asks questions, right? You see, Nicodemus had started to hang around Jesus and he was starting to act like him. I know this, the more you hang around Jesus, the more you start to act like him, right? Well, proof positive, because Nicodemus was now challenging the rest of the Pharisees with a question about Jesus. You know, he might not have become a true disciple yet, but he does come to a place in his life where he says, we need to stand up for fairness. This man has done nothing wrong. He came to a place in his life where he became open-minded. And I believe that's the beginning of breaking your anonymity. Being open-minded that something fantastic could happen if you just opened your mouth about who you follow and what he's done for your life. In becoming open-minded, Nicodemus understood that moving forward in his relationship with Jesus, breaking his anonymity was going to be a must. It wasn't going to be an option it was going to be a must if he wanted to further his relation with Jesus. You know, after a process of being teachable, which I love about Nicodemus, all the way at the end of John's gospel in chapter 19, Nicodemus shows up again. But this time, it says, two members of the ruling council of Pharisees. Guess what? Nicodemus has a convert now. He's unconverted, one of his brothers, because Joseph of Arimathea comes before Pilate, who had just had Jesus crucified on behalf of the Jews, and asked Pilate for the body so he can go bury the body properly. And Nicodemus is there with him with an arm full of supplies, herbs and ointments and liniment and bandages. We need to take the body. And that's exactly what they do. Nicodemus started off scared and protecting his anonymity and he goes all the way to breaking his anonymity and becoming a bold proclaimer of this savior jesus christ he started out an, uns an uncertain meeting in the dark never imagining where that encounter would take him the next one i want to look at is peter peter i love peter he gave up his anonymity then he took it back you know, I really don't believe in coincidences, and it's very 
uh, it's sort of ironic that the first time Jesus met Peter, he said this, follow me. The last recorded thing in the book of John that Jesus tells Peter after that breakfast on the beach where he reinstates Peter, the last thing he tells P Peter is this, follow me. That's the last recorded words. So it starts and ends with follow me. Peter was that bold, influential leader, and it seems, though, that fear was a constant companion. He was that friend of ours who would always say what everybody else is thinking, right? He would say something, and we'd be like, no, he didn't. He didn't just say that. All the while, thinking, I'm glad he said that. That's Peter. He said things a lot before he thought. He was a, a fisherman, and stereotypically that would have been a man of action. He had to make decisions on a second's notice when the fish were in the net. He would have been a strong man. He would have been a man who was unafraid of others or what they thought. And he demonstrates stuff like that when he is in the garden with a whole regiment of soldiers, and he decides to steal one of their swords and cut the soldier's ear off who was trying to take Jesus, right? So he was that bold, sometimes irrational, but I'm going to protect the ones I love type of guy. Then there was also that time he stepped out of the boat and walked on water until fear got a hold of him. And then there was also the time where he very vehemently said, no one will ever take the place of you, Jesus, if everybody else leaves you, not me. I will never leave you. Yet he denied Jesus not once, but three times. So Peter would have told everybody, he would have told everybody, I follow Jesus, and I don't know who cares until confronted by people who didn't know Jesus or didn't like Jesus. And then he would say, Jesus, well, I don't know Jesus. I mean, how well can you really know anybody? I certainly don't follow Jesus. It's interesting that in that moment when he said that, the Bible says with deep remorse he wept bitterly because he had taken his anonymity back. And fear seems to be his default response. But fortunately through the power of the Holy Spirit, he becomes a man whose heart was driven to serve God and get the message out about Jesus Christ. And he would boldly tell everyone who his master was. You know, unfortunately, Peter's not alone in this, I don't believe. because And don't raise your hands. But how many of you have wanted everyone to know that now that you've changed your life, you are following Jesus? Well, a lot of us have. But then you get around those old friends who oppose this Christian lifestyle or, 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 or didn't like what Jesus had to stay, say. And then you said things that, Oppose this new lifestyle you were in. Or you just didn't say anything at all. You let fear of what others thought take the place of what you believed. You know, Peter continued to make mistakes time and time again. But Jesus, as is in his nature, loved Peter wholeheartedly and continued to use him in his kingdom work. I love the fact that Peter was the one given the responsibility to have that first gospel sermon in the book of Acts, chapter 2. 
you know, what I love about that too is he will use you too, even when you decide to take your anonymity back. But I promise you this, you will be miserable when you do. When you leave that conversation with a friend that you've been wanting to talk about, but you don't say anything about your life and how Jesus changed it, and you leave there and you feel like, oh, why did I not say something? Because you took your anonymity back. You know, Peter's stumbles as a follower of Jesus did not cancel his identity in Jesus Christ. What they did was made him want to do better. Because when he wept bitterly in deep remorse, the next step he made was finding the risen Savior. He did everything he could to get back to Jesus. You know, seeing how Jesus loved him, an uneducated, sinful man gave Peter the courage to break his anonymity and then come, come to a point in his life where he never took it back. And seeing how Jesus loved Peter gives us the assurance that he can do that as well for us. The third person I want to look at is Paul. Paul gave up his anonymity from the very beginning. In Romans 1.16, it says this, Paul wrote, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then to the Gentile. You know, I think as Christians, many of us, after reading the amazing things that went on in the Bible and the leaders, especially those of the apostles and some that were around them, but all the leaders in the Bible, we start to think that these men and women were just naturally bold. I mean, that was their shape. That was their gifting. It seems as though uh, that all the things that they did just turned out great. They were like the superstars, right? I mean, they were like the ones we want to emulate. But when we start to examine the Scriptures more closely we start to see that they had some character defects of their own. And we start to acknowledge that just like us, they face struggles in their lives, they face weakness, and they face fear on a daily basis just like we do. And having said that, I'm sure that many of us would still think, yeah, that's for all of them except Paul, because Paul was just so naturally bold, and so that was his gifting and his shape, and God couldn't help but do great things through Paul. That's how good Paul was. I mean, I might struggle with boldness or weakness, but not Paul. After all, the Bible says that Paul was the one who regularly preached in opposition to sinful men. All through the book of Acts, it says he preached strongly. And he would tell people what they needed to hear, not what they wanted to hear. But not so fast. Because there are some passages in the New Testament that are pretty intriguing to me. And that may suggest that Paul may not have been that naturally bold person that we think he was. 1 Corinthians 2.3 says this. Paul admits that when he was with the church in Corinth, he was with them in weakness and fear and great trembling. 2 Corinthians 10.10, Paul acknowledges that his reputation among the churches was such that his letters were weighty and strong. But his bodily presence was weak and his speech was of no account. On at least one occasion, Paul directly asked the church to pray for him at all times that he could declare the gospel boldly as he ought to. Inferring that sometimes he had the desire not to. 
And on at least two occasions, the Lord himself encourages Paul not to be afraid in the middle of conflict or opposition, Acts 18, 23, and 27. And I, as I read those, all these things suggest that Paul may have naturally been maybe an introvert or a little timid or at least a little less bold than what we naturally think he was. And if that's true, it would definitely not be the first time in history that God pe used people like that, right? I've said this time and time again. God only uses broken people. You can write that down. Find one person in the Bible that had it all together, and God said, I'm going to make them, or, them a great leader. Find them for me and give them back to me because they're not in there. I promise you. God only uses broken people. Now, God had a bold ministry plan laid out for Paul, one that would characterize him as speaking in front of great opposition and Paul would take up that mantle but Paul knew that the only way he was going to do that was if he trusted in Jesus Christ Paul was the self-proclaimed worst sinner of all times listen to this he broke his anonymity the moment his sins were revealed and then forgiven. You see, Paul came to a point in his life where he was like, these are all the things I've done against God. I thought I was doing right, but there's a, quite a list of things. That's why I am the worst of sinners. And he said, and God said, I will forgive them all. That's the very moment he said, everybody's going to know about Jesus Christ and what he did for me. You know, I love in Philippians 3, that was before he was a Christian. Check it out. Read it sometime. It says, I was born in the right family on the right side of the track. I went to the right schools. I had all the right teachers. I did everything right. He said, as a matter of fact, I was perfect. I was faultless in my life. That's before he became a Christian. And then after he became a Christian, he wrote Romans 7. And in Romans 7, he says, you know, I try to do what's right. I even know what's right to do. And then I end up doing what I don't want to do, which is wrong. And I don't understand why I do what's wrong when I know what to do is right. Oh, what a wretched man I am. In his recognized weakness, Paul would proclaim boldly that he was the chief of sinners and he was only saved by God's grace, a message that he believed, and I hope we as a church believe that the church needs to take to the community in which we live. You know, all three of these men got rid of a heavy burden by breaking their anonymity, and that burden was the guilt of their past. It was an impossible burden to carry, and they came to understand when they turned their life over to Jesus Christ and then started telling others about him, about Jesus Christ, and what he had done for them, that they didn't have to carry that burden of the past sins anymore because they were all forgiven. You know, when you break your anonymity, you don't have to struggle or worry or wonder about who knows your past. You don't have to wonder because you're telling everybody about it. This is what I did. Jesus forgave me. And they're like, oh, maybe he can forgive me too. Now, transitioning to my life, there were actually three things that I accomplished by giving up my anonymity quickly. Um, because for the very beginning of my Christian life, 31 years ago, I decided that holding on to who I used to be or my anonymity was not something that I wanted to hold on to. The number one thing was it improved relationship, 
relationships with others, but especially my family. It was so cool now that I didn't have to hide behind my addictions of drugs and alcohol with my family anymore. I quickly told them everything I was doing in recovery. I was able to be honest around them. I didn't have to lie around, uh, around them anymore. And when I started thinking about it, I thought, wow, I, look at how much I gave up in a relationship with my family because of these stupid addictions or whatever it is you're holding on to that keeps you away from your family. Because if you get around them, you might have to be honest. You know, when you can honestly be around your family, it's really a beautiful relationship that God placed in a family and that he placed us in. The second one is expanded my support network. This one was so cool. I instantly gained accountability. You know, I went to a church. It was a church Mary was a part of. I, I went there, but I wasn't a part of it. I went to a church one Sunday night and told them that I was a drug addict. I desperately needed help. And their response was, we love you. We don't know quite what to do to help you, but we want you to be a part of this family. You might want to consider going into a rehab. That's the message that they gave me the night that I came there and said I had big problems in my life. When that moment of clarity that God had given me, I realized that I did not have the answers. And I needed to trust people that were wiser than me with the answers they had at this point in my life. So the following day, I went to a rehab because they said that's where I ought to go. So I spent that week in a rehab, and the next Sunday morning, the pastor just stopped in the middle of the sermon. He said, look, there's some cards on the back of your benches there, like the cards that are here that say Lovogram on them. I want you to pull out one of those, and I want you to write Mac a letter, a little card, a note. It can be something encouraging. It can be a scripture that you love, or just uh, say that I'm praying for you, Mac, to have strength that God will do mighty things. Like. Whatever you want to say, just write him a little note. That next Monday morning, hand-delivered to me were 700 notes that I still have today. I got a picture of some of them there. Yeah, so this is, that's laying out on a flat, those are, that's about that thick of letters and cards that kept coming into me over the 20 days that I was in that rehab. You know, it was, uh, it was crazy because the people that I was in rehab with, they weren't getting any letters. So after about a week, they started saying, hey, can we read yours? And I would just pass my letters around from this new church family I had that was more than a church family in name. They were proving it by stuff just like that. They wanted me to be a part of that family. And my support network expanded exponentially. I couldn't believe it. All during the week, people would call me on Sunday mornings. They'd say, Mac, Mac how's it going? Are you staying strong? We're praying for you. I know you can do it. They became my real family. I never regretted one second breaking my anonymity. Breaking my anonymity also gave me a chance to help others. You know, when I'm sharing my story, if I can help one other person come to know the healing that comes from knowing Jesus Christ, then breaking my anonymity is 100% worth it. If I just let one other person know that this healing is available to them too. You know, I am proud of my life as a Christian. I really am. Because of the one I follow. Not because I'm so great. Because of the one I follow. How would I be able to be the person I'm becoming? Because I'm still becoming. We're all a work in progress, right? How would I like the person I'm becoming if I continually tried to hide the person that I'm becoming? 
I want people to know what God's done in my life, what Jesus has done in my life, what you guys have done in my life. I want people to know that. So it's important for me to, to let other people know how I did it because if I let them know that I could do it, then that means it's possible for them too. So breaking my anonymity improved my relationship with others, especially my family, expanded my support network. I gained accountability. And breaking my anonymity gave me a chance to help others. Those are three points that are worth every bit of me breaking my anonymity today and the rest of my life, every day after this. All right. I'm going to finish our time today with a story. Mary, my wife, and I, we love adventure. Uh, in our early teens, and uh, no, no, not early teens, late teens, early 20s. We were married in our teens, but not our early teens. <laughs> so in our late teens and early 20s, we took up whitewater canoeing and kayaking. And anywhere there was a whitewater river, the faster, the better, the higher the water, the better, the more the rapids, the better. We would, we would be on it. One of our favorite rivers was called the Big Piney Creek, and there it is right there. The Big Biney Creek was only a few hours from our home, so I could call what the water level was, and when the water level was at maximum height, we'd take off and go. And this river had everything in it. You know, it had ledges and drop-offs and roller coaster, roller coaster rapids, and, and just everything you could imagine was in this little river. And this was that very end of the river. That big rock on the right, there's actually about a house-sized boulder and all the water funneled down into a pretty narrow place right above it. So the water would try to take you into that big rapid and if you hit into that big rock. And if you hit that rock, it would trap your boat or pin your boat there. Now, if you went to the rock right ahead of that, the little one up there, that's called the little mother. The big mother and little mother. If you went to the left, whoop, you're bad, bad news. You're into the big mother. If you went to the right, then all of a sudden you could just go right past the big mother safely. It was just like, all right, what a ride. Well, one of our friends on one of the occasions we was up there went to the left of the little mother, and when they did, they got trapped on the big mother, thrown out of their boat, and their boat was about a foot underwater. And we came on the other side of the river, and we were looking at their boat. You could see it there. It was just trapped perfectly on the big mother, and we were wondering what we were going to do now. You know, what was going to be our strategy for getting this boat out, the people who had floated on down safely, they came out, they were looking at their boat too. Well, about that time, a kayaker came by, and the kayaker saw the situation. He came over to our side of the bank and said, hey, I think I could help. I got an idea. He said, I could go over there, and I think I can just push on the back of that boat, wade out just a little bit. It wasn't too far from the shore. Push on the back, and as soon as I do, I think that boat will come out. I said, hey, great. Try it. Worth a try. So he gets over there, and what we didn't know was that he was going to tie a rope around a tree and tie the other end around himself. So he got the rope, and we're like, that doesn't look like a good idea right there. White water, fast-moving water, and tying yourself off to anything is not a good idea. So he ties himself off. It was so no noisy, we couldn't say, don't do that. But we were all standing up in concern now. Looking at this operation, he gets over there, he pushes on the boat, and as soon as he pushes on it, the boat comes out, and now where the boat was trapped, he gets sucked into the vacuum, and he's trapped against that rock, just under the water, tied to a tree, 
and he wasn't going anywhere. Well, we were standing there now not knowing what to do because he was coming up, and he'd come up, and the last time he came up, his, his lips just barely came up to get a, a breath of air, and he went back down again. Well, we didn't know what to do, but fortunately, there was a guy with us named Robert, one of my best friends, and Robert didn't know what to do either, but he knew he was going to do something. So he jumped in the water, and the water took him downstream about 100 yards as he was swimming across. He got on the bank, and he started running for everything he was worth up to that rope where the guy was tied off and now underneath the rock. He had his knife out, and when he got there, he just touched that rope, and it was so tight, as soon as he touched it, it was like a rival. Pow! And all of a sudden, the man started floating downstream underwater. The rest of us now went, because he was floating on our side, we went, we drug him out of the water in some of the calm water right downstream, turned him up on his side. He started coughing, getting all the water out of his lungs. He was alive. The next thing we did was had to get the rope off of him, which he'd tied in a slipknot. It cut through his clothing and into his flesh. He almost didn't make it. You know, when we brought him out of the water, it took about an hour for him to recover, enough where we could get him into his boat and get him downstream to camp. We got him in the boat, and when we got down to camp, we had a meal together. All of us weren't saying too much. We were all contemplating our own mortality and how quickly it could be over. In a snap, in a flash, what we know as life can be gone. He packed up the next morning. We never saw him again. Over the years, we've often wondered what happened to him. The one thing we did know is that he was alive because I had a friend who wasn't afraid to get in the water. And that's the question of today. You know, the question I started with was this. When you walk out that door, will anybody in our community know you're a Christian? That's only something you can answer. But the question I want to leave you with today is this. What are you going to do? Stand on the bank or jump in the water. There are people that are dying. There are people that are dying to know what Jesus did for you. So if you're here this morning and nobody outside this building knows who you are, it's really pretty easy. You need to repent. You need to stop that. And do something really radical tomorrow morning when you go into work. Take a coffee, coffee cup with you that says, I love Jesus on it. Start somewhere small. Let people know who you are and whose you are. If you're here this morning and just scared, ask God to give you the strength. Ask God to give you the strength to open your mouth. And then say this, say, Father, tomorrow would you send one person to me who needs to know about you, and in some way give me the words to tell them what you did for me. Well, you know, Mac, I don't want to turn people off by talking all Jesus in front of them and stuff. Well, you might want to consider this. You don't want to turn them off. Maybe they've never been turned on to Jesus kind of hard to turn somebody off that hadn't been turned on to. 
Whether you need to repent this morning or you just need prayers for strength to overcome this fear that you've got, there are going to be people down here this morning that are willing to pray with you and for you. We'd love to do that. So the question I'm going to leave you with is this. What are you going to do? Stand on the bank? Watch people die? Or are you going to jump in the water? People are dying to know what Jesus did for you. If you have any needs at all, please come while we stand and sing this last song.